It's April 4th, 2020, and thank you for joining us for this archive of Teaching American History's latest Saturday webinar in our American Minds series for the 2019-2020 school year. The focus of today's program was Douglas MacArthur, and joining us were moderator Dr. Chris Burkett of Ashland University, panelist Dr. John Moser, also of Ashland University, and Dr. Tom Braschino of the United States Army War College. Thanks for listening. Well, uh, welcome everybody to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach uh, history and political science uh, at Ashland University and in our master's program. Um, and, uh, the theme of our webinar series this year, uh, for those of you who have joined us before, you know this, but if you're joining us for the first time, let me point this out. Uh, our theme is American Minds, and uh, our purpose is to pull together some thoughtful scholars to have a, an interesting, lively conversation about uh, 10 individuals who either influenced or somehow reflect this idea of an American mind. Um, and we encourage all of you to join us today uh, in that conversation by submitting questions via the chat box. As always, we'll try to get to as many as possible. But please, uh, if you don't mind, when you submit a question, submit it to all participants uh, rather than to me privately. And that way, our panelists can see those questions as well and jump on them if they'd like to without having to wait for me to, to throw them out there. So in the next week, you'll receive an email with a link uh, by which you can request a certificate of participation. And that will also include a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. So today we're talking about General Douglas MacArthur and uh, have two very thoughtful gentlemen here today to help us uh, think about MacArthur. Uh, one is uh, Thomas uh, Braschino of the United States Army War College and John Moser, my colleague here at Ashland University. So we're trying to get Tom hooked up here, audio and video, and hopefully he'll be able to join us soon. Uh, but John, I'm very grateful for your time this morning. Uh, always enjoy our webinars together. Um, I don't see I don't see you much in person. I actually see you more on webinars these days than in person. <laughs> That's pretty much everybody except my wife and child. I see I see more in person. And it looks like Tom may, may have been able to join us. Tom, are you there? He may not have his audio working yet. Tom, if you can hear me, jump in at some point, please, and just let us know that you can you can hear us and we can hear you. Um, so I, I typically start by throwing out a pretty broad question to start the conversation, and then and then we'll see where it goes from here. But um, John, uh, obviously MacArthur is one of the great military figures in American history, uh, but also very controversial uh, in some ways. Um, so. Uh, in your opinion, what is uh, what's MacArthur's greatest accomplishment? And and then maybe on the flip side, what's the most controversial thing about MacArthur? In your opinion, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and choose two of his greatest accomplishments: <laughs> the way he conducted the the New Guinea campaign in World War II. Uh, I thought was 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 uh, was excellent. I mean, his his, his strategy in the in the Southwest Pacific in general. Was uh, was was outstanding. Uh, the other is the is masterminding the landing in Incheon uh, during the uh, during the Korean War. 
which re, which which literally did turn the tide of that uh, turn the tide of that. those were his those were his greatest moments uh what were okay you didn't ask for his worst moments you said most controversial well you well, you can do both <laughs> similar i mean th- th- there's definitely overlap there uh, the way he handled the Philippine campaign in nineteen uh, in nineteen end of nineteen forty one early nineteen forty two, uh, especially doing nothing for that critical period of hours after he had been informed of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and then and really did nothing to prepare against a, 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 an attack against uh, uh, against the Philippines, even though a Japanese attack on the Philippines seemed a lot more likely than a, than a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, the, where the controversy comes from is, is not, not only the, the, this, this, this very strange error in judgment, but the fact that uh, the, the guy's personality was so grandiose. I really like the T. Harry Williams, uh, great Louis, the great historian, American historian from Louisiana, T. Harry Williams, uh, that uh, I believe Tom identified this, uh, this this article. I really like the way that he said, "We we have America has always had generals like Eisenhower and generals like MacArthur, um, and they're extremely different. That MacArthur is really kind of a throwback to an older." Era before you had to take into account domestic politics and and the pressures of of of, of, of democracy. Um, the, the famous statement about him was he doesn't have staff; he has a court that surrounds him. So there you go. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. Great start, Tom. Can you hear us? Okay. Tom. Hello. Hey, Tom. We can hear you. Hi. Uh, we can't see you, but at least we can hear you. There we go. Are you all set? I'm all set. All right, great. Thanks, thanks for joining us. I, uh, uh, I, at the beginning, I like to kind of throw out a general question. I threw the question I threw out. John just gave his. I'm not sure if you could hear any of his answer, but um, I asked uh, your opinion on uh, MacArthur's greatest accomplishment, uh, maybe the single thing that he should be remembered for as a great achievement. And then maybe, uh, and then John threw out his uh, maybe most controversial or worst moment uh, uh, about uh, MacArthur. Do you have an opinion on on those two things? Oh, I, I guess we. Well, what did he? What did John say? <laughs> John, John said, go ahead. I said best was uh, the New Guinea campaign and the Southwest Pacific in general, and the Inchon landing. I said worst was the the failure to to take precautions after the uh, for the Philippines after the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, and then just spoke in general about his um, uh, his his failure to appreciate pressures of domestic politics. Fair yeah, assessment, Tom. Uh, yeah, I'm. Um, let me take this a slightly different way. I think the. Uh, that the success of the Inchon campaign, so it's probably his 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 greatest achievement, and it's also probably uh, the most overrated and problematic in all of his in all of his stuff. I, I think it was the, I I think it's it's a, like sort of perfectly captures 
MacArthur because it's um, it's 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 brilliant, but it's kind of brilliant in you know in a bunch of un-American sort of out of his era ways uh, that uh, and and it be and it becomes this kind of standard we use for for military genius, but it's not a very good standard for American military. And I think that it, that the the later mistakes, the later problems that he has in Korea are are directly directly attributable to to the successes he has at Incheon. Uh, you know, the, the, his belief that this is the way to do things. I, I just having studied this this era a lot, and these guys and his his contemporaries are, I guess he's a little bit older than everybody else, but his uh, or half a generation at least, or a generation older than everybody else, he plays close. To him and in Korea, it's just how to how out of step he is with all the rest of. Them. I think that that Incheon is an example of that. So I I'm always a little bit skeptical. It's not a great great answer to your question, but is is greatest success? I was sort sort of thinking about MacArthur in a little bit yeah. different way. Um, so uh, you know, and then I've I've been I was also thinking my role here might be a little bit more of his earlier career and the stuff that uh, we don't generally talk about. So I, I think he has some. Some great accomplishments at, at San Miel and in the Meuse Argonne in World War I, 42nd Division. Um, but even those kind of show his some of his problems too. So I think so. In a, in a, to more directly answer your question, I say his greatest uh, ability is this um, is his his way that he's able to be an, an inspiring leader, a, a enormously inspiring leader at times, and then also his greatest failure is that he swings wildly to the other side and is this. Terrible disaster of a of of leader at other times. He's he's a, he's he's one of the most fascinating characters for all those reasons. Yeah, I, I agree. Do you think he? I mean, you meant you described him as being sort of out of step in a way and and swinging wildly at times. Is that what's that the result of? I'm, I mean, not to get too psychological here, but is that is that just his personality? Is that who he is, or is this the result of um, as John was suggesting the. Uh, the sort of earlier era of uh, military thinking and, and, and training and experience that he grew out of, uh, you know, he spent some time in Mexico. He was, you know, was it the uh, Vera Cruz? There was an, uh, he was part of the the Vera Cruz incident. Um, and he, and he's around other, I mean, did he know Patton, for example, he was about the same era as Patton, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, Patton was, uh, Quite a bit junior of him, you know. That's he's so old. I mean, it's amazingly old for, the, for his for his peers. Uh, the only guy who's a right that's right around his age is Marshall. I think Marshall's a year younger than him. I believe. Okay. I think Marshall's eighty one, and he's eighteen eighty one, and, and MacArthur's eighteen eighty. I think there's a bit of an era thing there for MacArthur. That one of the reasons I think he's so out of step is if you look at his career, he's uh, this is this era when the United States Army starts to professionalize and have a well developed school system. Uh, with the for officers, once they get past West Point, we tend to focus in on West Point you know, because MacArthur has that connection. He goes back as the commandant uh, and he's graduate. But uh, what's more important in this era to those senior leaders is that they go through the Command and General Staff College at Leavenworth and they go to the Army War College at and then in Washington, D.C. And he doesn't do either of those things. So he's not there for, for either of those things. So it's not just that he doesn't get this, the same education. It's that he's not even sort of in in with his peers. Uh, so he doesn't have this sort of common uh, frame of reference for looking at, at war that all of his peers have, which is, I think is, is part of this. 
and, and some of the lessons that they had developed over time. And then, uh, and then there's that whole thing of him just being you know, like never in the United States. You know, he's, he spends a, an enormous amount of time you know, overseas, away from everybody else. He's got that uh, this, this little period as, as, the, you know, as the chief of staff of the army, and he's the commandant. He, he bounced around a little bit, but he spends a lot of time out in the Philippines. He spends a lot of time in other in other places. And then you know he has that ability. Even the Bear Cruz, a great example of a MacArthur thing. So he does this. You know, they, they they cite it out on the web page for him that he's this, he has this great heroic um, uh, scouting mission to the west of Veracruz to sort of look at look for paths to potentially do. They occupy Veracruz, and there's a thought they might go to Mexico City. Uh, Frederick Funston's in command at this point. The Marines sees it, and then Frederick Funston takes command. And there's this idea that maybe they'll, just like Winfield Scott had done, they'll go to Mexico City. And he does a scouting expedition, and it's he kind of does it on his own. And you know, this is this one of these cases where he gets nominated for a Medal of Honor, but it was either he was going to get the Medal of Honor, or he was going to get court-martial because <laughs> he, almost, he almost starts a war. He almost start, yeah. you know, this expands this into a into a full bore war, which uh, you know, because he kind of does this on his own. So it's just another great example of him being the telling my students here yesterday that you know he's got that uh, MacArthur's the, you know, he's the he's the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. Uh, so <laughs> that's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but even his uh, commanding officer, I think, supported his decision to to act on his own. I think right and supported his recommendation for his medal, I believe. Uh, yeah, still, I, I get your point, but sorry, go well, ahead. Yeah, the complicated part with that one is that Frederick Funston, uh, who, is, who is the commander, was um, a protege of Arthur MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur's father. Oh, I see. And maybe even more than a protege of it, since uh, Frederick Funston's first child was named Arthur MacArthur Funston. Uh, so, yeah, uh, who eventually died, died of uh, working cop, I believe, but he... Um, so yeah, yeah. So Frederick Funston was you had this odd little uh, you know how do I you know, take care of this? I got to take care of this guy. This is my you know Arthur, Arthur MacArthur. We clearly respected so much he named his child after him. Uh, that that he had, that he has to deal with uh, his kid kind of running amok, you know, and and then hearing it from mom if he isn't nice to him. So uh, I think there's that. It is a it is a it is this delicate issue that goes on in the Veracruz uh, yeah. story. So he didn't receive the medal, but maybe maybe uh, Bunsen's support was enough to save him from the court-martial. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's nothing came of it. So it was mm. one of these interesting cases. Since nothing came of it, I think he was able to kind of get away with it. But yes, they were well outside the American lines, and that was the problem. I see. Case. It got real hairy for, for a second there. And yeah. Back in mind. Uh, so the, we've got a couple of questions coming in already uh, on, uh, on this theme that we're talking about now. So uh, a couple of questions and observations. Let me see if I can scroll up here. Um, uh, from Randy. Randy asked, does his failure to recognize the threat to the Philippines and then to Korea stem from his hubris? Does it demonstrate that the thing that makes him great is also his greatest flaw? And... Um, uh, Jim asked, do you think that his staying out of the country was intentional on his point or because the military leadership wanted him out of the country? So thoughts on either of those two things, gentlemen? Trying to, I'm trying to look at the chat here. Question. Yeah, these are at the very end. They just they just came in as, as, uh, as you were talking, Tom. No, no, I don't think, it, I don't, uh, still hear me, I'm... Uh, Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, I don't think uh, it's intentional. It's just the way the career is going. One of these, you know, a little bit of a of American military history, I think that Americans are connected from the rest of the world uh, and that the officer force uh, sort of out there as much as they are even prior to the, the 20th century. So, you know, a lot of these guys went out and had mission, had, had responsibilities out, out, out in the, in the Pacific in particular uh, for a big chunk of their career. So uh, I don't think there was anything deliberate about it. I just think he ended up getting that. I mean, they all cycle through. It just He tended to stay. And then keep in mind, too, that the in the, in the late 30s, that's that he's in that weird semi-retired from the U.S. military and he's a uh, field marshal or whatever in the, in the Philippine Army, you know, takes on that that thing, which, you know, but he still has regular guys who are American Army guys who are his aides, including, including Eisenhower. So, it's, so it's, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. It, it, it's also worth remembering that that the. U.S. military establishment is very small during this period, and there's not a whole lot for them to do within the within the continental United States. So that, yeah, that where are they where are they going to go? They're going to go on mission also. Yeah, I was just going to mention. Sorry, I had to <laughs> forgot to unmute myself. Uh, one of the documents that we uh, asked people to take a look at is uh, uh, his. Uh, it's called the noblest development of mankind. I'm not sure which of you recommended that. If either of you recommended that, but I had not read that speech before. And that's a really interesting speech, given at just the tail end of this period you were just mentioning, John. Right, the pe- period of uh, uh, of reduction, reducing uh, the size of the military and the importance of the military. Um, I, I found this to be a really fascinating speech, not just because of how he talks about America and what America means to him, but um, how he how he frames this in the context of the importance of of uh, you know maintaining uh, you know uh, uh, sort of preparedness to defend these things that are most important right um, um, you know in light of his understanding of what what's uh, you know the accomplishments of American Western civilization as a whole so um, but I just found that a very fascinating speech given at this moment. Um, when was, I think it was in 35 or 36, when he was essentially stepped down as he was chief of staff. Am I right about that at this time? Yeah. Correct. Yes, he was. So, so again, can we talk a little bit about his? I, I mean, I, I think a lot of students want to talk or participants want to talk about World War II, the Philippines, and Korea. Uh, but let's, uh, Tom, you mentioned some, you know, had a lot of early accomplishments, uh, clearly made a name for himself and a reputation for himself. Can you guys talk a little bit about, say, you know, pre-World War II, uh, what were, you know, some of the things that, that allowed him to make his, his name uh, as an important person in the military? I mean, I, I, you know, for example, he's, he's known as uh, one of the creators of the, the 42nd uh, Division, right? The Rainbow Division, which I always find fascinating. I didn't know much about it. Just down the road, John, by the way, from Ashland on 42, there's a sign. Do you remember the sign commemorating the Rainbow Division? And I always wondered why that was there, by the way, because I don't I didn't think Ohio National Guard units were part of the uh the Rainbow Division, but um but, but uh he did things like that, right? That uh, clearly established himself as an important figure. Uh some other things that he was known for before World War II. 
Well, he overhauled the he overhauled uh, West Point at a critical time. I mean, West Point during World War One had basically become nothing more than an officer training school, uh, and he turned it into a. In, in fact, there was a lot of pressure to 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 keep it a uh, no more than a three year program, and he insisted on it being a four year uh, four year institution. Um, developed uh, West Point athletics to the extent, you know, really helping to make it, make it what it is today, but also making it a very a serious academic institution as well. I'm sure Tom has lots of other things he could add. Trying to improve the connection. Um, yeah, he, uh, he has a, a pretty interesting career in how it goes. And, and it was World War One. As the, at the 42nd division, I think that uh, it's a mix of some guard units, and then it's uh, and then they draft. This is one of the first ones where they draft guys from all over the country. Take the selective service guys. I think that's part of the reason why they call it the rank division. Pull from all over. There's probably some Ohio guys in there. I'm not uh, completely sure. It's an interesting thing there too because he's. Uh, it, this is one of these places where he had to be the most of the guys. One, he. He's a, a line commander. Occasionally, he doesn't really do much staff work in World War One, and he becomes a um, uh, the brigade commander, one of the brigade commanders, the second division. He's only the division commander for right at the end, I believe, for a period. He's commanding there. Uh, he's a very good combat commander. Sort of, you look at his World War One experience, that reputation of dugout dugs that he gets later on doesn't really match his World War One. He's definitely in the front lines and in the fight all the time. Uh, so he's he's definitely good at that, and he's so he has such a good reputation as a combat leader in World War One uh, that he's he's one of very few guys who doesn't get knocked down rank. He actually keeps his keeps his rank as a brigadier general, uh, in part because he gets the job as the as the commandant at West Point, which is a which is a brigadier general job. Uh, but almost everybody else goes way back down. Even guys who are high up at command. I mean, there's a uh, George Cameron is a, is a corps commander, a three star level command and he goes down to being a colonel uh, after the war um so you have you have some of that now he, he also was removed he also got pulled out of out of his position but yeah so uh so macarthur does that um that's his, his sort of big combat accomplishment he becomes one of the famous guys for it and and i think Pershing even sort of lists him as the uh, as maybe the, the finest you know one of the finest combat officers that they have in the whole in, the, in world war one and he is good, although again, you sort of see some of his problems uh, in the in the war and in his perspective later on. You know, after San Miel, and I won't get into the details of it, he's he's one of these guys who he says he goes out there with his a couple of guys and they sort of scout the German positions. And San Miel, famously, the Americans had to stop because they had decided to do the Meuse Argonne offensive and they completely changed direction on this fight. And he's and, and MacArthur goes out there and says, "Oh, you're just giving me my brigade. I could have." I could have gone to Mets, you know, which is, he couldn't have gone to Mets. He would have gotten killed. It would not have gone well, uh, but it's kind of in his sort of <laughs> mentality, not understanding what it requires, what it requires to sustain large units. He has, a, he has an issue with this uh, that, that sort of shows up later. So you even see it in world war one. Um, so he's a, he's, he's, that's, that's you know, his sort of world war one experience. Uh, but going back to that, this point about this, this speech and as the chief of staff, you know, it, it's, a particular problem for him because he's chief of staff during the, you know, the Great Depression, and uh, it's 
it's one of these uh, interesting kind of, and in MacArthur's case, it happens to be true because it's the Great Depression, uh, that they're not preparing and the army doesn't have all that it needs in order to be uh, prepared for the potential next fight. Um, but it is one of these you know, big tropes in American military history that the United States has never prepared. And it's a trope that is driven. It's, 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 uh, it's mostly true, but it's not entirely true. I, I mean, I think all of you have probably seen these things. I think some of these readings, MacArthur uh, says it. We like to say, you know, we have the, you know, the 19th largest army in the world at the outbreak of, you know, pick World War One, World War Two, smaller than, you know, Portugal or something like that. Or, you know, we, we pick these, you know, some some medium power and, and show just how pathetic we are. Um, it's only partially true. We like to exaggerate. So MacArthur's in this era of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a common thing for military leaders, chief of staff of the army to exaggerate the lack of preparedness. This goes on until today, even with our, with our very large military establishment that we have now, they're still are always saying, yes, oh, we're not ready. We're not ready. We're not ready. Give us more money. Give us more money. Um, you got to keep in mind, military officers, professional military officers, the leaders of the United States Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines are not historians. Uh, that's, that's not their job. Their job is to represent their institutions. So they're, they have a tendency to um, shape the history to fit them a little bit better. And so they'll, they'll emphasize lack of preparedness. And that's part of what MacArthur's doing here. Uh, this is right at the tail end of his of his his term as chief of staff of the army. Yeah, that's a great point. And Billy uh, actually had submitted a question on this point uh, earlier, asking about the speech in, in the context of 1935. Do either of you know, did this get him in trouble with all the FDR or FDR's reaction to this um, with, with everything that's going on? We know. I don't. I don't know if he react how he reacted to this speech in particular, but there's a there was a, a famous instance where uh, there was a there was a meeting and FDR floated the idea of reducing the the military budget by twenty five percent, and um, and and MacArthur basically flipped out on on the president, and uh, and and I, I don't I don't remember the quote. Tom probably does, but. Um, at the end, Roosevelt said, don't talk to, you know, never talk to me like that. But basically, it's a good point. And he backed off on the proposal. Apparently, according to legend, MacArthur went outside and vomited on the steps after that. After that. <laughs> That's fascinating. Uh, how, how, just on in this point, how 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 directly was uh, Roosevelt involved in the selection and appointment of high-ranking military commanders uh, going into World War II. Do we know, or did he, did he tend to leave those things to uh, uh, to others? And part of the reason I ask this is because despite this incident, John, clearly he uh, you know, didn't oppose MacArthur uh, being appointed to command in the Pacific, so... Uh, yeah, I think FDR FDR's attitude toward MacArthur was uh, he was a he was a little bit intimidated by him and wanted to keep him close and wanted to keep him happy to the extent that to the extent that he could. Um, he, he FDR also was not afraid to. Well, it is it is strongly suspected that Roosevelt essentially blackmailed him at one point uh, to keep him from becoming openly critical. Uh, the situation was the uh, uh, President uh, Quezon of the Philippines 
gave him five hundred thousand uh, dollars as sort of a, a, a this was af- actually a, you know after the war had started gave him five hundred thousand dollars after after he had uh, uh, after he had actually left the Philippines and it was sort of back payment for MacArthur's job as as uh, uh, trying to organize the Philippine army. But had it gotten out in the public, it would have really looked bad at this moment when things looked like they were falling apart in the Pacific. And apparently Roosevelt, he knew about this and suggested that he could make things make make things uh, uh, hot for MacArthur if he mentioned. Um, but generally, in, 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 to your larger question, generally speaking, FDR was willing to leave military matters to the generals. Uh, the one, I mean, one big counterexample I can think of is when he said, uh, no way is George Marshall going to go and command the operation in Europe because I need Marshall here in Washington. Fascinating. Well, I, I, I was, as you were talking, John, that was really interesting, uh, but I was sort of scanning the, the uh, chats and man, there's a wide range of opinions on MacArthur. <laughs> uh, before we maybe turn to some of his more specific uh, actions as uh, uh, in World War II and then Korea, um, you just uh, scroll down here a little bit. Uh, why? Yeah, is if you like, you can, uh, I have that uh, for for John's point about the so so to get an idea of what he's talking about. And again, this Please. is from MacArthur's memoirs. Um, which should be taken with a boulder of salt sometimes. Uh, he, he says, uh, he, he exaggerates, yeah, I, I'm, I'm generally a fan of memoirs, but MacArthur's the kind of people who give, give memoirs a bad name. But anyway, his, his, uh, his story of the dispute he's having with, with Roosevelt, what he says, he, uh, in, in my emotional exhaustion, I spoke recklessly and said something to the general effect that when we lost the next war and an American boy lying in the mud with an enemy bayonet through his belly, an enemy foot on his dying throat spat out his last curse. I wanted the name not to be MacArthur, but Roosevelt. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. Uh, that's where that's the president fun. says, you must not talk my way to the president. Then he went through up on the, uh, and then he went through up on the steps of the white house, according oh, to him. So that's, that's the story. Uh, yeah. So I saw on here, there was the, the bonus March one. I think that might be worth. Yeah. Yeah. His actions during the bonus march, and then, and then, in light, especially in the, in light of the fact that just after this, he gave the this, the noblest achievement speech. Go ahead, Tom. Please, I'm sorry. Yeah. So the bonus march is a really, I'm sorry. It, it, that, it's a really interesting uh, story that is that is, I think, it's gotten uh, more. Uh, it's not it's not partic- not really accurate in how it's described. So when the army goes in on the bonus march, now look, MacArthur. Goes in, he kind of he goes in, he exceeds uh, Hoover's orders in terms of expelling them. He goes earlier than than Hoover wanted, and it's more somewhat more extreme. Um, but I think most people would be surprised. Uh, they don't shoot it at Americans. Uh, they don't shoot at these veterans. Now that you know, to, to, if folks who don't know the bonus march story, the idea is uh, after World War One, a Congress grant bonuses to World War One veterans that were to be paid out later. I think uh, around 1940, I believe, was the was the date of the start of the bonus bonus payments were supposed to go out, kind of like retirement things, uh, closer to that, uh, and pension type payments. Uh, and these guys, because of the depression, wanted the bonuses to be paid early. Uh, there is 
some indication, and it's probably right that there were communists involved in, in this, in the bonus march. So this caused some angst about uh, danger of all this, what this could cause. Um, by the time the army gets involved, and uh, it goes into this, and, and MacArthur, and I'm, again, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of MacArthur, but I'll, I will say in this particular case, it's, this is one of these sort of overwrought things. By the time the army gets in there, the only people who've been killed have been killed by D.C. police. Washington D.C. police who did who were killing who had killed a couple of guys or a couple of shootings that had happened. When the army goes in and moves them out, uh, Patton actually later on says, "You know, this is a great example of how to do this because no one is killed. Uh, one one infant dies, um, and in the course of them moving them the, the people out of there, uh, the infant. Um, I mean, it's it's probably safe to say that this infant probably wasn't in the most healthy shape, living in a in a, in a hut on Anacostia." Flats, you know, which is not a, not a great area uh, from where they were, where they were camped. So this is a this is like a newborn or something that was in there. And that's it. Uh, otherwise, they actually get them moving out, and they move them out pretty quickly, and it's not a big deal. Now Roosevelt, being the good politician, is they come back. People don't realize the bonus march. Bonus marchers try to come back every year, and uh, and Roosevelt, being the good politician, he goes, "Hey, look, we completely appreciate you being here. We've got a spot for you down farther south where no one will ever see you." And it won't be a big deal, so it doesn't become the big political thing uh, that it did up with Hoover. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of these kind of overwrought stories. Um, you know, Eisenhower's there, there, MacArthur's there, so there's everybody kind of uses this as an example of this harsh measure, and it's it's pretty it's a pretty minor, uh, I think, in the in the larger scheme of things. And one of the funny um, things you point out about this is some of the, Eisenhower will have whole chapters biographies about him about the bonus march. And and next to nothing about the fact that he went and and, and wrote the history of World War One, the battlefield history of World War One for the American armies and battlefields for the guide to World War One, uh, which probably was more important to him his effort as a his later life as the you know, Supreme Commander in World War Two in Europe. Uh, but it is one of these interesting you know way we get caught up in these big flashy things. Yeah, it, it, it's it's funny. Uh, I, I've often wondered if. If the bonus march hadn't taken place in the summer of, a, of an election year, if it would have, if we have really registered. And secondly, my recollection is FDR finally took the bonus marchers and sent them down to the Florida, the Florida Keys, and a whole lot of them got killed off on a hurricane. Yeah. 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 They get, they get them dropped in the Florida in the Keys and they get killed in that, in that little nasty hurricane. Huh. Right. It's fascinating. Uh, we've got a lot of great questions coming in, so I'm just going to keep going to the questions, if you don't mind, gentlemen. Um, uh, Stan asked an interesting question about uh, possible comparisons between MacArthur and someone like George Custer. Uh, uh, so any uh, any parallels there worth discussing and maybe uh, just in general? Uh, what other great sort of uh, historical figure, a military figure even, could we we compare MacArthur to? Uh, I thought maybe this would be a fun question before we get into some of the more specifics of, of World War II and Korea. Uh, Williams makes the comparison to McClellan, although he does so carefully because Ooh. MacArthur was a much better <laughs> general than McClellan was. But in terms okay. of his overall, his overall demeanor and his lack of patience with the political leadership, uh, he, he he looks at uh, McClellan. Um, uh, 
Winfield Scott is uh, is is another example of fuss and feathers during the uh, during the Mexican War. I one could look at if if, if one if, if if one expands this outside of the domain of U.S. history, um, General uh, Wallenstein in uh, in in the Thirty Years' War might be seen as another example of a of a general who, who found it found it very difficult to play under the political rules that were placed on him. Uh, ultimately, he had to be. Ultimately, he was killed for. It's fascinating. Yeah, John, I, I, I like you leave the American one. I think yeah. So the Williams reading is good, and he does do the the McClellan in, in the terms of the lack of respect for political leadership, clearly a uh, an issue with MacArthur. I think maybe you could also say as a uh, as a general, I, I think uh, Montgomery might be an interesting one to sort of think about as a comparison. Bernard Montgomery is a comparison in part because uh, much like Montgomery, you know, MacArthur's got to be the star of every show. You know, it, you'd be pretty hard pressed. You know, we can do a pretty decent job of naming guys who served under Eisenhower alongside Bradley and stuff like that. I mean, name the, name the, you know, the British field army commanders, British and Canadian field army commanders. I mean, I know some of them because it's what I do for a living, but I, uh, you know, you know, Montgomery doesn't generally, you know, give the Miles Dempsey's of the world much credit uh, in, in his stuff. He's a star of everything. And just like in you know, with MacArthur, you don't, you know, you don't see, uh, you know, Walton Walker in Korea, or you don't really see, you know, you see much about Kruger or uh, Reichelberger, any of the guys were his his commanders with him in the in World War II. Uh, he's got that sort of going to be the star of every show here, and I think a, a little bit of an overestimation of his of his own genius, I think it, which is how I think. Montgomery was too. It's fascinating. <laughs> there's a there's a great question from Julie, whose school is named after Douglas MacArthur. And I kind of want to, if you don't mind, Julie, I'm going to hold off on that toward the end because I think that might be a good sort of question to wrap things up toward the end of this. But can we sort of segue into uh, World War II? And John, John, of course, mentioned at the beginning uh, the controversy over his handling of uh, the defense of the Philippines. But there's a, a, a point here or a chat submitted by uh, Michael, uh, gentlemen, as an Australian, we don't like MacArthur much. <laughs> we feel he sidelined us in World War II, underappreciated Australian troops, uh, gave us the dirty jobs, kept the headline grabbing jobs for the, the Americans. Are we justified in this opinion? Any, anybody want to tackle that? I'm going to defer to Tom on that. Yeah, so uh, I think it's uh, yes, absolutely. And I think it's even uh I think you're right on, uh, and and let me uh, maybe make this a little more specific for people. So MacArthur gets a lot of credit, especially from uh, well, D. Clayton James does some of it, um, but then William Manchester and American Caesar picks this up and goes even farther with it. That MacArthur is this genius about this uh, uh, sort of the island hopping, but also sort of jumping past enemy units uh, instead of instead of attacking them front frontally. Does a good job of sort of skipping over them, skipping over them leaving them behind. To, to, and the impression you get from a lot of these American folks and sort of MacArthur fans is that these, these units are left behind. These Japanese units are left behind to die on the vine you know, along the North coast of, of New Guinea, for example, which is a really brilliant campaign, but they're not left behind to die on the vine. They're left uh, there for the Australians to go fight and clean up. And, and so, yeah, so the Australians do get that, that dirty job of doing that. And, you know, this is a more important thing than what we're, this goes back to the point, my initial point about Inchon. Uh, it's all well and good to sort of envelop, get behind the enemy, uh, but one of the, na the nature of modern field armies, 
uh, in the field is that they're, they're extremely resilient being destroyed. This isn't like the Napoleonic days where you could, you know, early Napoleonic days where you know, surround an enemy force, essentially destroy it, and then it's, they, they completely collapse and fall apart. Uh, field armies that are organized into these big, large cores that all that each of these cores is like a little mini field army itself are really resilient and very difficult to destroy in a single day. And it's, MacArthur never seems to grasp this. It's like, hey, if I get behind them and I cause them, you know, cause some sort of shock, then they'll uh, they'll collapse. It's a very German type uh, approach to looking at at, at, at war fighting. Uh, and then, the, but the reality is, is that since these units are resilient and these large forces are, are resilient, you have to do something about them or they're sitting on they're sitting on top of your lines of communication. If you want to keep progressing and keep moving forward, you're going to have to deal with those. And MacArthur had this, uh, this habit of leaving that to other people. I'll leave that to somebody else and, and I'll take the, we'll go to the next one, go to the next one, go to the next one. And he does that in World War II and the Australians are this kind of forgotten story. There's a pretty good, a pretty new book about this called uh, MacArthur's Coalition. Does that talks about the Australian role uh, much better? Terms. <laughs> you wouldn't even know the Australian role. It, it puts me in mind of the uh, the old saying: "If you are in if you are in the enemy's rear, he is also in yours." Um, but I wonder to what extent his dismissive attitude towards the Australians stems from the fact that he did not like the British and the British Empire at all. It was ex he was extremely critical, and even even as he was solicitous of uh, the Filipinos and 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 the and the Jap and uh, the Japanese. I mean, he he clearly had what you might call a progressive attitude on things like uh, like like empire, and 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 was had had a deep admiration for Asians in general. Really, I didn't know that. It's fast. Well, that would help explain his his maybe love of the Philippines in a certain way. And uh, his, his attitude during the occupation of Japan, which very I interesting. we'll have a chance to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. So for the sake of uh, getting in uh, and moving toward that, uh, so John, you mentioned earlier this lack of preparation, um, which falls on MacArthur's shoulders, right, in, in the Philippines uh, before the invasion. Uh, so, so can we talk a little bit about that and, and the scale to which that was a military disaster? And then after that, I still want to ask, though, despite the failure um, with the Japanese invasion of the Philippines, was MacArthur somehow still the right man for the job? Uh, I, I preface this by, by saying I've, I've spoken with a lot of. Uh, oh, boy. Can you still hear me? I do. All right, my computer locked up for a second. I, I, uh, as, uh, I, I uh, as an undergrad, I interviewed, I think I've told you this, John, a lot of uh, World War II POWs, including uh, not just Americans, but among the Americans, uh, several who were sort of felt as though they were left behind on the Philippines. And the sheer, just changing it by the sheer number of prisoners of war that were taken, uh, it struck me as a, as a, as a huge disaster. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, am I exaggerating that too much, or am I justified in that? Yeah. And, I, and I think their anger at him is understandable. However, it would have been a really big deal if if MacArthur had been allowed to fall into Japanese into Japanese hands. So that would have been a that would have been a really serious blow to to morale back home. Because one of the, it's often said about MacArthur, he was very good about he was very good at public relations. And 
he was uh, he was a even even if we could cr- we criticize his his strategy for defending the Philippines, he becomes a symbol of resistance in uh, in the Pacific theater during those dark those dark weeks of early 1942 when place after place is falling to the Japanese. He's he's crying out for reinforcements. And where are U.S. forces going? Well, to the the extent they're going anywhere, they're going to the U.K. because uh, FDR and most of the commanders are committed to this this Europe first strategy. So MacArthur becomes a symbol of resistance, but also kind of this this uh, guy who's engaged in a doomed struggle. And, uh, of course, this becomes part of his uh this legend that he carries through to the rest of the war, right? I, I shall return. And then eventually, uh, eventually he does. Yeah. And I'm thinking of the photograph, the famous photograph that uh, I think Billy maybe asked about earlier. Yeah. Which on the one hand, uh, but, which, uh, go ahead, please go, John, please. Uh, there was no staging. Well, uh, let me take that back a little bit. There were two different photographs, his landing on Leyte and his landing on Luzon. And certainly in the case of Luzon, in actually both cases, he understood that the cameras, the cameras were there. But these were two separate landings. Neither of these was staged in the sense of, oh, let you know, we've already done it. So I want but this time I want to do it again for the cameras like the, the, the uh, Iwo Jima photograph. Yeah, that was not the case. I see. But I mean, it's that that, fo- that famous photograph strikes a lot of people as a symbol of his arrogance. But it really was important for PR purposes, in a certain yeah. sense, as you were saying, John. So, well, and, and morale boosting purposes. And, and and the plan wasn't for him to have to wade ashore. It's just his his landing craft got got, got hung Stuck. up. <laughs> yeah. So okay. Well, he, he went forward anyway. It's pretty dramatic. It worked. Yes, yeah, sure. Tom, Tom, do you think uh, MacArthur was the right man for the job in the Philippines? Uh, yeah, so this is a, a, a great question. Um, uh, there was no right man for that job. Uh, I mean, maybe there's some better and, and better and worse, but I don't know that anybody could have defended the Philippines. He, he certainly made his mistakes uh, in, in there. Uh, yeah, I, I don't generally try to be in the armchair general business. Telling guys how to, how to fight better. As a matter of the historical record, this kind of goes back to my preparedness. Uh, they had done um, the United States military, Army, Navy, Joint Army, Navy, science for the whole at, at, at the war colleges, Army, Navy, war colleges. They had done extensive planning in, uh, in terms of war plan or war with Japan. And and by the time, by the late, by the late 1930s, the, the consensus was clearly that they could not Philippines if the Japanese back. Large numbers. They're just never going to be able to hold the Philippines. So they uh, now again he made some mistakes in terms of the slow reaction to the attack and all that stuff. But probably would have made no difference. Uh, they were always going to have to abandon the Philippines. They were always planning to go back to, to, to counterattack and, and come back. They knew that that was the way it was going to go. Um, and and then in terms of in terms of leaving, he was ordered to leave by Franklin Roosevelt. The reasons that John pointed out. It, you know, this has been a this would have been a terrible blow to American morale, but uh, you know, and here's where but here's where MacArthur is is, you know, and I don't know if it's a if it's deliberate and through thought or if it's if it's just his sort of uh, 
romantic feeling towards the Philippines. His father had served, his father had served there, he had served there as a young man, and then he goes back multiple times. Um, but you know, it aligns. You know, there's we don't give the United States much credit in our in our foreign policy, and a lot of we're always sort of beating ourselves up about our mistakes. Uh, but one of those things is that you know, we took on a responsibility with the Philippines. The United States took on a responsibility with the Philippines uh, uh, when uh, decided to occupy the you know, the archipelago after after the Spanish American War, after the Philippine War, and they decided to do this. Uh, and you know, the Americans don't really want to do it. And they talk about leaving, but there's always this concern about the defense of the Philippines. And uh, he's not wrong, right? I mean, this this you know, when you take on this responsibility, part of your responsibility is claiming to be in charge of places that you're going to go back and you owe that to the world. You know, a lot of the credibility of the United States in the world is that, and this comes up later in World War II when they have the debate about whether or not to go to Luzon or go to Formosa instead. And a big part of this is a is an, an appearance thing that matters. Now, there's a lot of military considerations primarily military reasons that they go to Luzon and not Formosa as uh, a part of the approach to Japan. But that said, there's also a key part of this that is, you know, when he says he's going to return, you know, he's, he's, you know, it's about him because it's always about him, but it's also about the United States. And, you know, I don't know that Americans have a great appreciation of, of this, but certainly that World War II generation of Filipinos, uh, I happened when I was working at the Center of Military History in Washington, D.C., We've done a little bit of support for the movie uh, Great Raid based on the Ghost Soldiers book. And so we uh, actually got to watch it. They, they did the premiere of the movie in, in D.C. And because we had helped out with it, we got to go to the premiere. And I was struck by one of the things in the audience was how many Filipino veterans of World War II were there. You know, and, and extremely patriotic uh, about the, the sort of the American Filipino effort together that we were allies. And this was you know, they don't have a lot of that. You, you don't see a lot of that sort of angst about the United States there. And I think you know, MacArthur kind of gets that right, that the, sim- that the symbol matters. You know, if the United States, if, if we did take on, you know, this uh, this responsibility, that we owned it. You know, we, you know, we bought it, we now we own it. So we, we broke it or whatever, now we own it, so now we're going to have to deal with it. So, uh, and it matters in, in the world. So I think, you know, that's one of the things that he probably gets, gets right. I'm not sure if he gets it right for the right reasons or if it's because it's personal for him, but he still gets it right. And um, it's one of those cases where having the, the guy, you know, go up on the beach, um, you know, it matters. It's an important thing. That's, that's a great point, Tom, and especially you're connecting it back to the obligations imposed. Well, that the United States imposes on itself uh, in the Philippines and after the Spanish American war, right? We, we, I think this may be connected to what John was suggesting when he had this kind of progressive uh, a view of, of these things. Um, so yeah, when we say that we're taking responsibility for the, the protection and, and even civilization of the Philippines, uh, that, that's a pretty serious obligation. So do you know, by the way, Tom or John, do you, is this how, uh, MacArthur's father, Arthur MacArthur ended up in the Philippines as part of that? Uh, I don't know much about his father. Was he there pretty shortly after the occupation of the Philippines? If you don't know, it's fine. I'm just curious. Uh, his dad is a, uh, uh, I believe he starts off as a, so they send a corps to the Philippines. I believe he starts off in the initial, uh, so the Corps of the Philippines is initially for the Spanish-American War, the Spanish surrender, and then it, uh, you have this sort of uh, contested occupation of Manila 
Uh, the Americans basically make a deal with the Spanish to go into Manila and take the town and the Filipino insurgents. And again, keep in mind too, the Filipino is, is we're getting into the, into the weeds here, but a Filipino is a misnomer. There's really uh, say Filipino when it's especially then sort right. of the, the, the kind of tribal differences, the ethnic differences are huge, uh, Tagalogs and Visayans and Ilocanos and all of the, the Maccababies and all the different people who, who, who live in, in the Philippines, even just on Luzon uh, are, are pretty divided. In any event, they get into this fight, and when it turns into a conventional fight, I think that MacArthur, MacArthur is a division commander in that fight. Uh, he might be brigade at first, and then he kind of he rises up through the ranks and becomes the overall uh, the Philippine uh, becomes the Philippine department commander uh, for a while, and he's so he's overall in command in the Philippines during the bulk of the Philippine insurrection. Uh, that's and this is when Frederick Funston goes and captures Emilio Aguinaldo, who's the so this is. Uh, Think of it like sort of like the Bin Laden raid. Uh, only Funston captures him and brings him back, um, which is an, an interesting thing. <laughs> That's and, interesting. and he brings him back, and and, uh, and and when he leaves, it's this crackpot scheme. And he tells Arthur MacArthur about, hey, what we're going to do is we've got we've we figured out where his headquarters is. He's asking for reinforcements. We're going to dress up our Mackey Baby Scouts like they're they reinforcement form, and we're going to pretend to be prisoners. We're going to march into his camp and take him. And he does this. Arthur MacArthur saying, he said, oh, okay, General Funston, I fear I'll never see you again. <laughs> and then, <laughs> That's rolls back, in, rolls back into Manila Bay on, on Vicksburg with <laughs> on the ship to Vicksburg with, uh, with El Ronaldo. Interestingly, this is a total aside, although it, it, it does kind of relate. I, uh, Frederick Funston Jr. and Emilio Aguinaldo Jr. both uh, uh, matriculate at West Point in the same class. There's a picture of the two of them you know, so the guy who captured you know, the, the the guy who captured the father, the Zins, uh, they're in the class. So the two of them are on the steps at uh, one of the steps, I think, at Bayer Hall or something at at, uh, yeah. at West Point, uh, which is really interesting. I don't think Aguinaldo graduated, uh, but it's uh, right, did so. Yeah, this is fascinating. That's something too, right? That that, that, there's, that there's Filipino students going to West Point. You know, so uh-huh. the, the connection that's going on here. So there's that other aspect of it, just how interconnected the United States and the Philippines. Where it really is uh, American, and 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 just the whole idea of the United States that the, the plan. I'm trying to remember the exact. Yeah, I think it was the idea was that the Philippines was going to get its independence. Was it, it was a plan for 45? Is that right? That was the agreement. I think they had come to. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so the United States has to go fight back into the Philippines to give it its give it its to give it its independence that was planned, and they stick to that, which again to that credibility uh, of of the uh of what the americans are doing and and macarthur certainly a part of that yeah, that's fascinating this is really fascinating to me because i didn't realize just how deeply uh douglas macarthur's roots in the philippines extended um and so these you know, examples about the his father and the connections with the filipinos is really fascinating to me so um how do we assess macarthur's um uh, leadership after um, the fall of the Philippines, and not just for the duration of the war, but but especially uh, as uh, as uh, director of uh, Japanese occupation. John, I know you wanted to jump in on this, especially, and, and I'm embarrassed that at the at the outset, when you asked what is his greatest moment, that I didn't I didn't mention this, but this is this has got to be way up there. Um, you know, if, if you if sometimes people look narrowly at his insistence that the emperor not be prosecuted, which 
there were probably grounds for going after after the emperor, although it's still very it's still very fuzzy the 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 extent of of the emperor's culpability. But but MacArthur made a reasonable point that it was going to be much easier to reform Japanese society if the emperor remained as a uh, as a figurehead. And uh, and I think he was right about that. When you look at actually what was accomplished in the period of the occupation. It was a tremendous amount. I mean, a land reform that completely transformed the patterns of land ownership in the country. The breakup of the old zaibatsu, although many of them came back in an, in, an, in, a, in another form. Uh, the destruction of Japanese militarism, although to be fair, <laughs> militarism had essentially been destroyed before he uh, before he landed. Um, it, it really so much of the Japan that exists to this day. Uh, it, Really owes its start to to the reforms that uh, that MacArthur oversaw. So I really think that was that was uh, a tremendous accomplishment. And I always love when I teach uh, teach Japanese history to show that famous photograph of him standing next to the emperor. Um, the emperor wasn't happy with that at all and wanted to to be reached. Well, no, he said, "Well, I don't want this." Uh, he he issued, the emperor issued an order saying no one should be able to see this photo. And uh, MacArthur overruled it. He said, on the contrary, I want this, this, this photograph to go to get everywhere. And if you're not familiar with this photograph, look it up. It's very famous, easy to find on the Internet. Uh, the emperor is wearing a, a business suit, not his old ceremonial gowns. Uh, and, he, and standing next to MacArthur, MacArthur just towers over him. And the emperor looks a little uncomfortable. Uh, MacArthur is not even wearing his dress uniform. He's kind of got a slouch to him. He's completely at ease. Uh, and, and, and this, you know, of course, he had already ordered that, that, the emperor, that, that, that the emperor would say, I'm not a god, which he did. But aside from this announcement, if there was any way to lay out to the American people, to the, sorry, to the people of Japan, who was really in charge, that photograph did it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and you mentioned earlier his admiration, in a way. You and Tom both, I think, mentioned his admiration for uh, the, people, as, you know, the Japanese, not just the Philippines, but, but the Japanese. So, so uh, that that had an effect on his uh, on his, uh, in many ways, sort of soft approach. Um, not always soft, but generally soft approach to reforming Japan. There's no doubt in my mind that he he admired Japanese culture a great deal. In fact, I think this was when he was uh, when he was chief of staff. He used to dress in a kimono in his in his office in Washington. <laughs> Trying to visualize that. <laughs> well, uh, we have about ten minutes or so left, and I don't mean to rush things, but uh, but. Uh, Sort of segueing to uh, you know from from the end of World War II and, and the occupation of Japan to um, to his leadership in Korea, um, how how is it that he is appointed? Uh, uh, and I apologize for not knowing the technical term here. Uh, uh, commander uh, Tom, correct me on these things. I apologize, but not sure what his title is in Korea. Um, um, but how 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 is it that he comes to be in charge essentially of operations in Korea, and then um, 
And then what do we make of his, uh, I mean, we've talked about his accomplishment with the invasion at Inchon. Uh, but uh, if you want to say more about that, please do. But also, um, when, I'd like to hear your both your thoughts on on when and why things start to really go bad between MacArthur and Truman. So I'm asking you to talk about a lot in 10 minutes. I apologize. <laughs> uh, I'll give you a, a, if you want me to do that real quick on the virus. No, uh, for people who have this kind of interest in, in broader interest in American military history, this uh, how the United States kind of carved up the world. Uh, after after World War II, where they start to have more formal uh, these more formal what we now call combatant commands, he has Far East Command is is his is his command, and he becomes a you know it's U.S. Forces Korea is one of the names Thank for you. it. He's, he's the UN command. He's a, he's got a lot of hats that he wears. Uh, uh, I see. Uh, the thing about uh, and I think um, a guy named Michael Froman wrote a book called Truman and MacArthur, which does this really really well. Uh, a few years ago, he talks about uh, to a degree I hadn't really realized. You know, if you think about MacArthur as an Asia hand, a guy who's so focused on Asia, you know, the, the, the fall of China, communism uh, really uh, affected him. And he was he was obviously very strongly uh, against this and, and, and hostile to what had happened. And you know, he really wanted the uh, so for him, the perspective, this broader perspective for him is, is from from the from the from the jump of this is that he's not that concerned about Korea. He's really concerned about China, and he's in particular concerned about using the, uh, in some way, assisting uh, the the nationalists who are now on on Taiwan in going back uh, to China. So, uh, in order to kind of visualize this, he's kind of angling really from early, early on. We tend to get focused on once the Chinese come in, which I think he's kind of happy about because he's like, hey, let's make this what this is about anyway. Uh, we tend to focus on whether or not he can bomb over the Yalu. And and you know use use tactical nukes and all of this stuff, but if you kind of turn the map, almost ninety degree, uh, I guess uh, almost one hundred eighty degrees, and you think of uh, <laughs> he wants the Thai the Taiwanese, uh, the, the nationalists on 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 Taiwan to do a landing back on the mainland, almost like an Inchon behind the Chinese forces that are now in in Korea, and and he's kind of pushing from this early on. So the the point of this is that he is. This the this he sells he pushes this as a strategy for winning the the Korean War when in the reality is that he he wants a whole new war uh, a war with China uh, that the United States would would play a much larger part in uh, and supporting the, the nationalists so that they can get get it back from the com from the communists and this is where the tension is this is where it starts to build he's kind of he starts pushing for this. You know, once they once they kind of stabilize from his perspective, once it stabilizes Korea, he's kind of uninterested in Korea. Uh, that's not really his point. And, and he starts he starts pushing for this and he keeps pushing for this. And this is what the issue is. This is why you get Bradley, Omar Bradley saying this is the wrong war in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, because he's literally talking about starting an entirely different war. That's the tension. It's not so much, you know, disputes about how to win in Korea. He wants to start a war with China. Uh, which is, you know, even though you can kind of say, yes, obviously the Chinese are in Korea and we're fighting them, the United States is fighting them. Uh, it's still over Korea, not over China itself. So, uh, that to me is where you see the tension. That And that precedes the war. That precedes the fighting. He's actually kind of pushing for that stuff, even from his position in Japan prior to the war. He's kind of, hey, let's oh. we're gonna help them get back. I didn't realize that. That's amazing. And I think this connects back to his, his long fascination with Asia 
And, um, and he sees Truman in the late 1940s taking all of these steps to shore up Europe against communism. And he is one of these who is, is deeply critical of, of that, or not so much critical of, of what's going on in Europe, but saying you're ignoring Asia. And then you see what happens after Truman's reelected in 1948. You know, China, China uh, becomes communist in 1949. The Korean War starts in 1950. The Soviets uh, also in 49 test a, a test a nuclear weapon. He, he's there's this sense that the world that seemed like it was under control up until around 1947, 48 now seems to be falling apart. And this also explains why there's a, there are a bunch of conservative Republicans who are who are willing to look to uh, uh, to MacArthur for leadership, saying Truman has messed things up by focusing exclusively on Europe and letting Asia go to hell. Now here's here is MacArthur, the one man who knows what to do in Asia, and Truman is is ignoring his advice. Yeah, that's fascinating, and um, we've asked. Uh, or posted uh, uh, two speeches, uh, or one's a radio address from Truman on MacArthur's firing, and the other is uh, MacArthur's, is it his farewell address, I believe, or his speech before Congress. Um, yeah, farewell address to Congress, where they both kind of make their make their cases uh, <laughs> as to why the other person is wrong. Uh, but when I read, uh, when I read uh, Truman's um uh, radio address explaining why MacArthur had to be fired. It's funny. Of course, I guess as president, he can't give the kind of detailed answers that you both did. But it it it, it kind of makes it sound. Truman kind of makes it sound as though MacArthur's just a he's he's a, a warmonger. He's dangerous, and he is absolutely refusing to uh, to, to listen and obey political authorities on, on these questions, and specifically the president's orders. That he's this rogue uh, character who's who is no longer going to abide by uh, the the decisions of the commander in chief. Is that a fair assessment by Truman of, of MacArthur? And how does right. MacArthur respond to that? <laughs> yeah, no, look, I, 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 you know, Tom, why don't you why don't you take this, Tom? I think it is. Um, I think I think it I, I I think it is a fair assessment. I think uh, historians have, have come to the uh, the general consensus that it's a fair that it's a fair conclusion on on Truman's side. Although it is worth remembering that at the time that is not the view. Uh, I think up until maybe George W. Bush or something. I think that that no president leaves office as unpopular as Harry Truman. I mean, it's like his his uh, including Richard Nixon. I think he actually has. I think he has. A, I think I think Truman had worse approval ratings than Richard Nixon uh, when he left office, which is which is sort of stunning um, when, when you think about it. And in this large part, it's because of this, it's because of this perceived failure, this unwillingness to win the Korean War um, on the terms that, that, and I think this is largely based on a misunderstanding, like I said, that the view is, is that uh, Truman wouldn't let MacArthur win the fight uh, with, with Korea, in Korea against, you know, the Chinese there, misunderstanding that, that the fight that MacArthur wants would require a World War II type effort on the part of the country, uh, and you know, he's not about to pay that price. Not like the American people are all that interested in paying that price if they knew what it meant. Uh, I think they thought, kind of thought, "Hey, who's out there? That's good enough." And plus, we have these nuclear weapons that can't—they have these atomic weapons. Why can't they can handle this? We can do this. Um, 
you know, so, so that, 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 that aspect of it. And in, in case, you know, it's always one of these funny little things that uh, in case you don't believe how unpopular Truman was and how popular MacArthur was, I have my, and, and the perception of the Korean war, which has also changed for us over time. I have two movies. Uh, uh, one is uh, back to school. Uh, has that, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, why didn't we, why didn't we? Oh yeah. 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 I won't cool. videos. It involves with the, with uh, professor, involves, professor Turgeson's, Right, Professor Turgeson, right? And, yeah. and uh, Rodney Dangerfield tells us because Truman is too much of a bad word to let McCarthy go in there and blow out the comic <laughs> bastards. You know, there, there's that one. He says, "Good answer, good answer." Good answer. Like, <laughs> uh, which was the great, uh, the great Sam Kiss. And then the other one is um, is Heartbreak Ridge, uh, which is that these two these veterans of 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 uh, Korea and Vietnam say, "Hey, we're all one and one." You know, going into going into Grenada, uh, which Heartbreak Ridge is a Clint Eastwood movie. They say that hey, we're, our records are one and one. So at best, Korea is a tie. Um, and in 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 part, it's you know, it's this this dynamic of what MacArthur is promising. You know, you go fight wars to win them. Well, I mean, the initial object, the purpose of the of the uh, American contribution, the United Nations contribution to Korea is to preserve an independent, non-communist South Korea. You know, and they win. They do that. Uh, and as history has shown, you know, pretty effectively over time. Uh, not not perfectly, obviously, because North Korea continues to exist. But there's this promise for a minute that we could do more, um, and and it and then it, that fades once the once the Chinese come into the war, uh, because it's just not worth the cost uh, to do it. So we're back to the initial purpose of the war, but we still have this impression for a long, long time, you know, that this is you know, at best a tie, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know, so it just goes to show how powerful MacArthur is. You know, so. Whatever we say as historians, going back and looking at this, it is worth keeping in mind uh, in this debate between Truman and MacArthur. MacArthur wins pretty decisively for, mm-hmm. in terms of the debate for, for a long time, a good 50 years after this event. Yeah, that's a great point. Two great uh, pop culture references, too. Very useful. Um, and Ian uh, points out that, again, um, I think it was Ian pointed out that uh, if Truman is president, even after firing MacArthur, she says was very generous in allowing him to have a parade and to address Congress. Uh, but, but, but MacArthur before Congress doesn't back down a bit. Right. But I've always been wondered, uh, I've always uh, wondered uh, in that speech, MacArthur famously says, you know, we, the, the purpose of war is, is victory, right? You don't go into war, not, not, not aiming to win, but is he talking about the Korean war in light of what you were just saying, Thomas, or is he referring to this larger war, uh, which involved, a much broader swath of Southeast Asia. Um, yeah, so that's a... Uh, maybe that's an unfair question, but... Um, no, I, I think uh, he is saying... Uh, so here's... The, this is the, the trick in our system, in our in terms of civil military relations. When it comes to victory in war uh, at the political level, that is determined by policymakers, not by military leaders. You know, what does victory mean? What is what is an acceptable end of this mean? Uh, and and so for you know for Truman, victory is uh, and and for that matter Eisenhower, uh, and for most uh, people who are responsible with at those highest levels, victory means preserving South Korea. Uh, that's good enough. We're calling that victory. That is that is that achieves our policy aim uh, in this in this uh, war. Uh, and what MacArthur's not saying is that. It, it, He's saying victory on my terms. You know, there's no substitute for victory, but he means victory on his terms. And on his terms, that actually means taking the war to China and removing this threat altogether. 
Uh, so that's kind of what he's getting. But that's not the way most people read, I think. So, um, or at least for a long yeah. time. Look, if you look at if you look at that speech, he's talking about Europe and Asia as two fronts of the same war. So he's he's clearly talking about a glo a, a global conflict that that ought to be fought with the gloves off. This is really I mean, the MacArthur's position and the popularity of it among the American public is really a reflection of this discomfort that Americans had with the idea of a limited war. Right? Their their experience with war was. World War II, and before that, World War I. It's simple. There's the enemy. You go and destroy him, and you you, you do whatever that you do whatever it takes to to do that. So it's not surprising to me that Americans get frustrated with a war that doesn't be seen doesn't seem to make a whole lot of progress. You have a guy who's out here saying, "Here's the answer. We ought to you know we ought to bomb China. We ought to unleash John's forces." Um, it, it's not surprising to me that the American people found that appealing as a way out of this situation. That's a yeah. great point, John. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Tom. Please. I was going to add to that. I think it is, it, is, it is a great point. And the other thing to keep in mind about this era, uh, this, is a, this is a new era for the United States in one sense. I think, I think John's right. You know, uh, even though the American people have this perception sometimes, and when they have that perception that you go and you fight a war and you, there's no such thing as a limited war, you go and, and you, you, you fight and grind it out until you win, that perception is is the dominant view in wars where the American population is involved is 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 directly involved. Now we have plenty of examples in American military history where the United States military goes out and 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 fights these limited wars for limited objectives, and the American people don't even know uh, really what's going on. Actually, the Philippines is kind of an interesting example of this in the first case uh, because uh, MacArthur doesn't get this lesson out of it. But um, initially, when they go to the Philippines as part of the Spanish-American War, they're made up of a bunch of regiments drawn from states uh, and very quickly they go hey look we can't have the 20th kansas here anymore because the people at home are get real impatient with this so they they send all those guys home and they, they offer to whoever wants to stick around uh, and they they, sh they transfer them over to the volunteers and then sometimes to the regular army and it's a different even its name right volunteers as opposed to this rose guard uh, units and they do this very deliberately because they know that there's less of a connection, less of a demand to win the war and bring them home. And I think like, hey, look, this is going to be a slog. We have a military government. We need volunteers. And so then they nobody's really, nobody tends to demand volunteers come back home. Keep in mind, though, in Korea, this is the era of the peace, I have a peace of the first time we had a peacetime draft that even preceded Korea. We have a draft, which means that sort of by default throughout the Cold War up until the end of the draft in 72, 73, 1972-73, all of these wars are by definition wars that involve the American people because there's a draft the whole time. You know, so you know that emotion, that 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 need to fight the war, get it over, get it bring home, tends to apply when we're when uh, the sort of civilian, the city civilian population, not professional military, is involved, and that sort of helps explain why you get these sort of different uh, different narratives of American military history. You get the Max Food. A kind of version of savage wars of peace, uh, you know, American powers about the rise of all these small wars. We do it all the time. Limited, no big deal. Well, those are generally fought by, uh, generally fought by professionals, volunteers, people who, are, who signed up for it. Uh, you know, when it's when it involves the people, I, I, like when we have a draft in the Cold War, this peacetime draft, it's a big chunk, big big chunk of time uh, that that you know, then they start to get you know real antsy about it and it starts to feel like it's a big war because the people are involved. And that tends to drive that feeling. And that's why we get that. I think that's part of the reason why you get all the angst you do about, about 
uh, Korea and Vietnam. Um, and I, I would even say in, to a certain extent about today, because the precipitating incident for both uh, for Iraq and Afghanistan for us was the September 11th attacks, which made the people feel like it was their war. Uh, but then we didn't call out volunteers, which created us all kinds of mental uh, you know, uh, you know, tension uh, among the American people. You know, it was our singular focus as a country on this war, but we weren't actually involved. So it was, you know, caused this. So the military, the professional military fought it like a limited war, but the American people kind of wanted it to be more absolute, uh, you know, driving towards objectives. So that caused a lot, I think a lot of tension we've had over the last, I'm going on 20 years now. Yeah. Well, that's a fascinating assessment. So yeah, the great, a lot of great points uh, from, from both of you on this, on these uh, questions. So we've, we've kept you over uh, quite a bit here. We started a little bit late, but um, maybe as a wrap-up question, uh, I wanted to circle back to this question from Julie, who says her school is named after Douglas MacArthur. What can we use for MacArthur to help inspire pride or leadership in our school? So we'll end on a positive note, I hope, maybe. What? John, go ahead, please. I'll go back to his, his role in post-war Japan, which was uh, which was extremely important not just for u.s history uh you know turning an en turning an, an, an enemy into a into a close friend but uh but but critically important for the history of japan as well great thank you tom final thoughts uh, if you go to some of these readings uh i think one of the things about you know so, so the the some of the duty honor country stuff uh you know, whether or not we think that that MacArthur exactly lived this or, or liked it or, or was all of this uh, the way that he, he should have been. And it goes into that, um, the reading we gave about the 42nd Division, too, and what he's talking about, you know, what we fight for stuff. He had a um, he's an example of some uh, uh, inspirational leadership in some hard times uh, that, that he's you know, and you know, he says the right words. And sometimes just saying the right words, whether or not we totally buy that he believes them all the time, is kind of enough. You know, there, there, there's, there's something there that, that you can, you know, you can, you can quote him, and and whether or not he's the most perfect example of this, because you know, who's who is the most perfect example, right? And we say this all the time: George Washington owned slaves, and Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. But we still take their words and we use them, and we and we and we say, hey, look, the the, the principles that they're talking about stand for more than what. And then, you know, they stand for more than, than the imperfections of individual humans allow. Uh, so, you know, in this case, he says, you know, he says and does a, a lot of things uh, that are pretty inspirational and are, are pretty worth pondering and thinking if this is the way you would like. You know, this is a, this is a an honorable and good way to live a life um, and to approach your sort of your, your, your service relationship with your country. And it can be pretty inspiring that way. Uh, and that's sort of in the aggregate we do. We do better than and. We do when we just look at some of these the, the clearly flawed individuals, and that's you know present company me me included. I'm not you know by any means <laughs> you know perfect. Uh, so I was MacArthur, not a perfect man, but a, in many ways an inspira inspirational one. In many ways a very confident one, uh, worth studying, worth understanding. Um, but just you know, you know keeping yeah. in mind you know, the whole story. Well, that's really well put, and gentlemen, I thank you both very much for your time and your thoughts today. This is one of these topics. I actually wish we had another hour. Uh, to, to keep going on this, but um, I know you're both busy. But thank you very much. Uh, it's very, very uh, interesting, and I learned a great deal. So thank you. Thank you. Be well. Okay. Thanks again for listening. 
Our next Saturday webinar, and in fact the final Saturday webinar in our American Minds series, will take place on Saturday, May 2nd of 2020, always at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. It will be on author Ralph Ellison. So we will complete our American Minds series with a 20th century author. Uh, Given the situation with school closures and so much going on right now with the COVID-19 virus, uh, we are running a number of other webinars uh, during the week, actually. We, are, we have started a, a series that we are running every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern on topics in history. We're calling it Insights from History. And these individual programs are about different events in history that we might be able to draw some kind of insight or wisdom or perhaps at least some perspective that will help us understand and grapple with the events that are, that are unfolding around us. The next in those series comes up on Wednesday, April 8th, as I said, at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, and it will be about economic interventions during times of emergency. You can find out information about all of our upcoming webinars at tah.org slash program slash webinars and from our homepage at teachingamericanhistory.org or just tah.org. Thanks again for joining us.